Oh, fantastic. I get another opportunity now to speak to my happy warriors. So welcome to each and every one of you happy warriors. Thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Well, I'm recording this, uh, this show in the first week of June 2020, and I have to speak about the way that riots have disrupted many cities around the United States. What remnants of the tattered economy that was left to us by COVID-19? No! COVID-19 wasn't the culprit. The culprit was the leadership, the political leadership, the media leadership that uh, turned something perfectly manageable into an economic calamity, something that uh, needn't have happened at all, but did. The problem was not the virus of COVID-19. The problem was another virus I'll tell you about, the really destructive virus. And so once the uh, impact of what politicians and media people made of COVID-19 and the tattered economy that they joyfully inflicted on America, what is left is busy being pulverized into oblivion right now by rioting. So I want to talk a little bit about riots, and I want to talk about lawless thugs, so utterly degenerate that they steal from other degenerate thugs. There are videos that clearly show one group of looters viciously attacking another group of looters in order to seize their packages that they've just liberated from stores. And they'd be funny in the same sense that if you watch the bombing of a great city, if anybody who happened to be on the rooftops in London and watched the German Luftwaffe inflict the Blitz on London, and you saw there was a certain eerie beauty to the flames lighting up the dark night and throwing the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral into silhouetted relief. But anybody who actually thought to themselves, oh, this is beautiful, wasn't realizing that they were witnessing the destruction of a great city. And so laughing at a video of one group of looters attacking another group of looters, yeah, it, it has its moments, doesn't it? And uh, you think to yourself, yep, yeah, they deserve it, all of them. At the same time, the truth is it's too sad to laugh because we are watching the the actions and activities that herald the end of civilization. Am I overstating this? 
uh, I don't think so. I'm not saying it's the end. I'm not saying civilization is over. I'm not saying, uh, you know, get your two years worth of food and weapons and head for the hills. I'm not saying anything like that. But uh, we were watching activities that were destroying civilization. And what we were watching, and it's important to see the entire picture, because if there is anything that your rabbi can add, it's the entire picture, you see, because each and every one of you saw exactly the same things I saw. You read the same reports I, I read. You watched the same videos I watched. You might even have studied the same statistics that I have studied. Uh, but there is something here that we have to recognize, and that is, uh, yes, those vicious predators with no conscience that joyfully bashed in the stores, obviously uh, hugely problematic that we have so many human beings like that in the American population is a massive problem. You might say, well, what do you expect? 325 million people, of course. No, it's not what I expect because in the 1960s, 1965 to be exact, there was a power outage in New York City. There was no looting that night. Um, there have been other instances of calamities throughout the United States and looting virtually unknown. But things have changed, my friends. They've changed dramatically. Uh, in 1992 in Los Angeles, we had the Rodney King riots. And uh, you might remember how a um, dangerous guy under the influence of PCP um, really, in, and again, I'm, I'm talking about the entire video, not just the part that American media cruelly and destructively played again and again. They only showed the section of four police officers beating motorist Rodney King. Uh, but what they didn't do is they didn't show how prior to that Rodney King had uh, flung them off, uh, hit them, uh, when they tried to uh, to tie to cuff his hands, he was able to with with almost superhuman strength, uh, and so we were not shown all of that. But uh, following following the lawsuit, not a lawsuit, the the criminal trial of the four police officers, um, three of them were exonerated, and one uh, was uh, there was no no verdict. And so basically everyone acquitted, nobody found guilty, not because of racism, but many people in America will say yes because of racism, but because looking at the full evidence, looking at all the photographs, speaking to people who actually watched what happened, um, it was clear that the police had no other way to subdue Mr. King. Nonetheless, the, the administration... Um, in an attempt to calm down the riots, instituted a civil rights uh, lawsuit against uh, the officers. And in this case, two of them were found to have violated the civil rights of Rodney King. Two of them were acquitted. But um, 
again, Los Angeles ended up with a riot, uh, killed dozens and dozens of people, destroyed huge swaths of property, and, um, and really turned large sections of Los Angeles basically into slums, places that no, no businesses want to open up there anymore, no stores wanted to locate there. It was a calamity. And, uh, and as rotten and as bad as the rioters are, and let's in no way minimize their destructiveness and uh, the frightening aspect of what has become of us, that, they've been, that there are that many people in America who can do this, and it wasn't always like that before the 60s. It wasn't, but now it is. And we've got to remember that there are other culprits every bit as bad. Uh, one of them would be the media, who are doing everything they possibly can to stoke the fire and fan the flames and throw fuel. They do everything they can to uh, make Americans who are susceptible to this feel even more angry, and they do everything they can to legitimize the looting and to purify the plunder, suggesting that, well, it's not only the looters, it's the media, and it's not only the looters and the media, it's also those who fund and encourage it. And here I have to include uh, somebody called George Soros, a Hungarian-born Jewish financier and business leader, who is really in, he's like the poster boy of anti-Semitism. Um, it's, it's absolutely appalling. And by the way, every criticism of George Soros is dismissed as, oh, it's anti-Semitic bigotry. Um, and of course, <laughs> I am immune to that charge, for I am one of the circumcised Hebrews myself, um, so not to worry for me, but yeah, George Soros is uh, largely responsible, carries responsibility along with the media uh, as a huge funder of Black Lives Matter, which in itself is a very problematic organization. Apart from anything else, apart from the splitting up of the population by race, and apart from the um, encouraging violence against police, apart from all the rotten reasons, all of those reasons to, um, to dislike Black Lives Matter as an organization, um, they have this uh, goal. Listen to this. We are committed to disrupting the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, and especially our children. Okay, um, any organization <laughs> that uh, is hell-bent on destroying the family as the basis of civilization, yeah, yeah, they are trying to destroy civilization. And make no mistake, if you want to know what it would be like in an America in which Western civilization has been well and truly obliterated and the principles of the West have been vanquished and consigned to the garbage can, um, why don't you just go out in uh, New York or Buffalo or Los Angeles, go out during the riot, because that is actually what it all looks like. 
Which brings me to the various reasons that have been advanced to explain the riots. How can these things be happening in America? And so uh, I thought I would tell you some of the false reasons. And once we have refuted and debunked them, we'll take a look at the real reason for the riots. Um, First of all, let me also just explain that not only was Los Angeles torn apart by riots in 1992, but um, look what happened during the sad events of Hurricane Katrina, right? A, A meteorological calamity which struck a Democrat-controlled city for many, many, many years. And one of the features of a Democrat-controlled city is deferred maintenance. All right, I've spoken about this before. Go to any Democrat-controlled city, particularly one that's been democratically controlled for a long time, you will find roads that honestly are maintained to the level of Slovakian sheep trails. You will find potholes big enough to swallow small cars. That's only a slight exaggeration. You will find uh, city-owned property neglected and not maintained properly. Uh, You will find that traffic lights are still old-fashioned, haven't been set up to monitor traffic flow as they are in modern, well-run cities around the globe. Um, you will find, oh, plenty speed cameras, by the way. Democratic-controlled cities, they'll do plenty speed or red light cameras because that's just another way of taxing people with cars, them rich folks, you know. So uh, that's exactly what they do. And so um, what happened is that in Katrina, the dikes had been neglected, and above all, the pumping systems had been neglected. Now, ever since the Dutch built their dikes in the 1950s and pushed back the North Sea, they've actually not had any floods there. No, And by the way, North Sea storms every winter are every bit as awful as Hurricane Katrina was, make no mistake about that. And yet the Dutch have never... You know why? Because those Dutch Protestants maintain everything there's almost nowhere you could go in holland without seeing everything beautifully maintained and upkept and that my friends is really a very good indication of the condition the spiritual condition of the people living there go along and look at houses go and look at neighborhoods if you'll find houses with long grass and worn um, paint and missing roof tiles and shingles and uh, missing pieces of siding. and uh, Just generally, you see a house like that's a mess. Please don't say, oh, poverty, because that is an unjustified slur on people who have not yet made much money. That's not a function of poverty. That is a function of values or lack of values. A lack of values means you do not look after your stuff. And that is a function of leftism. And so left-run cities, democratically controlled cities, you must expect things not to be maintained. And so for many years... Um, New Orleans was badly maintained. For many years, it was run by Democrats, still is. 
And so the pumps were in bad shape. And so it wasn't the hurricane that did in Katrina, that did in New Orleans. It was the failure to maintain the city. And so uh, one of the news reports from August 2005, which you'll remember is when it happened, listen to this. With much of the city flooded by Hurricane Katrina, no, it was flooded by the failure of the pumps and the dikes. With much of the city flooded, looters floated garbage cans filled with clothing and jewelry down the street in a dash to grab what they could. In some cases, looting on Tuesday took place in full view of police and National Guard troops. At a Walgreens drugstore in the French Quarter, people were running out with grocery baskets and coolers filled full of soft drinks, chips and diapers. When police finally showed up, a young boy stood in the door screaming, 86, 86, the radio code for police, and the crowd scattered. That's right. Sounds familiar, right? It's exactly what's going on in America right now in the first week of June 2020 in many, many cities. How about um, the power outage in New York? Not in 65, which had no looting, but in 77, July 1977. Uh, This is a nicely written uh, media account, by the way. The lightning bolts severed three power lines, two connecting nuclear plants in Westchester, with plants in Rockland and Orange counties, one running to the Con Ed substation at Pleasant Valley. That station quickly overloaded. Within minutes, the other lines shut off, tripped by safety switches. New York City cooled the sweaty night by thousands of whirring air conditioners and using a lot of juice, suddenly lost. 1,200 megawatts of electricity that had always dependably streamed down from Canada and upstate. The flames lit the faces of soon-to-be criminals, fast realizing that the city and every unaffordable item behind every plate glass window, everything they ever wanted and ever needed, was free for the taking. Someone smashed a drugstore window. A squad car, red lights giving the street an eerie glow, edged up to the growing crowd. Two cops stepped out, looked around, and quickly left. The crowd chuckled. They could do anything they wanted. (laughs) You see, uh, that's what happened. You take everything you can get, openly boasted an 18-year-old named Cheryl Ross. Look, dungarees are $18. Sneakers are $24. Who wants to buy sneakers for $24? President Jimmy Carter is not giving us what we want. He ain't giving us nothing. So we have to take it. In Flatbush, Brooklyn, Bronx, along the Grand Grand Concourse in Queens, Upper Manhattan, a neighborhood that tonight would permanently be scarred, armies formed. They tied storefront grates to car bumpers and yanked them down. They played tag with outnumbered cops. And they took, oh, did they take... They grabbed groceries from markets. They carted off musical instruments and stereos from music stores. They stole 50 Pontiacs from a Queen's dealer's showroom. They took diapers and radios and televisions and shirts and shoes and toasters and records and boxes of cereal and baseball gloves and pots and pans. They carried off $100,000 worth of boxes of of sofas, chairs and tables from furniture by Alex on the Grand Concourse, leaving behind only a parking meter that had been ripped from the sidewalk and thrown through the Xander's window. 
Soon it wasn't just these stores that were targeted. Two men who were raised on the Upper West Side and had opened a furniture store with a small business loan watched as their life's work was ravaged. While what the looters couldn't carry away, they destroyed. This is very important, by the way. What the looters couldn't carry away, they destroyed, smashing a glass chandelier and plunging knives into leather sofas. It's very important because this is more than just taking. Now, the uh, riots and looting in uh, New Orleans because of some injustice was this part of an elevated and noble protest? No. The rioting and looting on the streets of New York in um, the summer of 1977 because of an injustice? Was it to free Nelson Mandela? No. It was to get free stuff, that's all. But there was also a very destructive element to it, and there always is, and I will come back to that. Um, how about uh, June the 2nd, 2020, the current crisis during the time I record this show? And, and by the way, that's why I, I'm giving the date, but it's irrelevant, because what I'm talking about was true in Katrina, it was true in Los Angeles, 92, it was true in New York, 1977, it's true in many cities around the country in 2020, and it'll be true in other places and other times. What we're doing is delving into what's really causing the rioting. Uh, this is from uh, the first week of June 2020. Under cover of the night, under pretense of protest, the three young vandals arrived outside the plywood-covered entrance to Macy's legendary flagship store in Herald Square on 34th Street, New York. As seen in a video posted on Twitter, one of the men yanks at the corner of a single board late Monday night before a second looter delivers a running kick to the soon splintering plywood. The crowd cheers as the plywood sheet gives way after several attempts. And then the masked looters, drawn like larcenous moths to the flames of a nearby burning garbage can, head inside the one and a quarter million square feet of retail space for an illegal shopping spree that became a nightmarish tableau of looters engaged in a wild rampage punctuated by cheers from the crowd. Okay, so um, what is going on? Well, uh, as you could hear from that Daily News report, one of the explanations is this is part of the protest. Um, people, the government, society doesn't listen to peaceful protest. We have no option but to loot and destroy. That way they'll pay attention to us. That's one explanation and I will leave it to you to decide for yourselves whether that fits what it is that you saw going on. Um, another explanation is poverty. Listen to this. You, you probably realize this, but um, there's been a very interesting change in jobs in the United States over the last 30 years. So from... Uh, about 1990, it goes a little early, I'd call it, I'd say from the 80s already, uh, a very dramatic change was taking place. 
I spoke about it on my radio show, indeed, in the early, uh, oh, in, no, in the 90s, I was talking about this. And, you know, not because I'm a genius or a prophet, but this is fairly obvious and very straightforward. There are certain natural patterns of cause and effect in the world in which we live. And once you understand, and in my case, I have been taught it from ancient Jewish wisdom, when you know the patterns, it's really easy to see what is going on, and it's not even that hard to see what is going to be going on. And so uh, what was happening from the 80s until the present, the trend continues, but it's, it's almost complete, is that the jobs in factories and manufacturing were very, very many, and jobs in restaurants, hotels, um, movie theaters, and so on, um, in other words, leisure businesses, were very few. People were still working to some extent in America. But uh, over the last 35 years or so, there's been a huge drop, and I actually graphed it. And I'm, I, I mean, I would love to do this show visually as well on video, so I'm able to show you things like that. But um, there are um, reasons why we cannot do that at the moment. The reasons are very simple. It's just economic. Uh, we are not, at the moment, generating enough revenue from this show in order to be able to invest in uh, creating it in video format. But if I did have that, um, I would be showing you a graph of the uh, number of jobs in America in manufacturing, and you see it up high on the left side of the graph, and you see this slide. It looks like a water slide in an amusement park. Uh, as this this graph drops precipitously, a huge drop in manufacturing jobs in America, and you know that already, right? We've you know we've everyone's spoken about the move of manufacturing offshore uh, to China, to uh, Indonesia, to um, to um, uh, Korea, and many many other places today. We know about that. Then if you look at almost the exact opposite graph, on the bottom left, fairly low down, are the number of jobs in um, entertainment, in leisure, um, restaurants, and, and so on and so forth. And you see that climbing in almost a mirror image of the other graph dropping. And so um, what's happened is that the... Now, that's not the same number, right, because the number of jobs lost. I'm just saying that jobs in entertainment have been climbing, jobs in manufacturing have been dropping. But this, has not, this isn't saying what kind of jobs. In other words, in manufacturing, um, there was basically always a job for anybody, right? And, and you, could, you could live on an American manufacturing job, but... Um, when it comes to jobs in entertainment and uh, leisure and restaurants, well, it's, lot, it's a lot harder. Um, you know, let's, let's put it this way. Uh, if you're basically illiterate and you can't read and you don't talk properly and you don't know how to dress and you are not able to accept orders from a boss or a supervisor without a sullen expression of resentment, you're not able to get a starting job at Marriott or Hilton. It's not going to happen. 
neither are you going to be able to get a starting job at a restaurant. It's not going to happen. Whereas in manufacturing and uh, and um, a factory, yeah, there were there were jobs and people were able to learn while they were there. And so what's happened is that um, in the the um, uh, in the manufacturing sector, with all those jobs being lost, okay, so they've gone, and so the jobs that have survived and increased in America are entertainment and leisure and restaurants and hotel and so on. Well, guess what happened in early 2020? Something called COVID, which in itself would have been okay. But of course, the heavy-handed governmental and bureaucratic response destroyed those. And so, by the way, this is all part of the theory, the economic theory of the riots. And so, what happened is all these people have no jobs now because of the heavy-handed governmental and bureaucratic response to coronavirus and because restaurants and hotels and everything is shut and travel is shut. And so all these people, well, they have no option but to, uh, to riot and loot. This is the economic explanation. And by the way, a lot of very smart people believe it. I may not be so smart, but uh, I am wise, and I know that that's not true. What's more, I also know it is a slur on people like my grandparents and probably yours. For you, listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, for you are all upright, decent, and righteous people, and you come from decent, upright, and righteous stock, and so... What I'm about to tell you about my grandparents is probably true for your grandparents. My grandparents went through periods of intense poverty. I'm talking about the inconsolable sadness of putting children to bed who were crying because they didn't have dinner. They were hungry. And my grandparents never stole as much as a loaf of bread in their whole lives. And I'm sure that your grandparents went through tough times and they too never stole a loaf of bread. So this is an irresponsible and unacceptable slight and insult to people without money and who've never stolen. There's something else wrong with this. And I urge you to look carefully at the pictures and the videos. There's more than enough of them, unfortunately. And tell me, whether you think those folks out there looting, are they folks who are after looting, they look at their watches and they say, sure, hope we get our jobs back. I'd love to go to work at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Is that what you think they're saying? Do you think there are people who are saying, man, I really, really preferred my job at the Hyatt uh, Regency International Hotel um, as a front desk clerk but since that is, since I was put on furlough, you know, it seems like a, you know, why not? Seems a good idea. Come out tonight and get me some uh, computers and TV sets and uh, sneakers. Is that really what you believe? Do you really think that the people who are breaking into stores and having an absolute orgy of violence, destruction, and robbery? Do you really think those are folks who, at another time, three months ago, were upstanding members of society, 
citizens with secret dreams and hopes and aspirations, people going to work every day whether they liked it or not. Is that is that what you think they are? No, I don't think so. I don't for one moment believe that. And so we have to dismiss, I have to certainly dismiss the notion that anybody was rioting and looting because, well, you know, because of COVID-19, their job uh, ended, they were let go. So, you know, what should they do? I don't believe there was a single hard-working American in that crowd. I don't believe it. That's not who they were. And it's not who they were in 92 in L.A. and not who they were in 2005 in New Orleans and not who they were in 77 in New York. Oh, no, siree. It is a different category of person. A person who is characterized by what? Skin color? Don't be ridiculous, right? There were blacks and whites rioting and looting. Uh, It's nothing. It's not an issue of skin color. But it is an issue of values, and we'll try and get a better understanding of that. Remember, what I'm probing for is the reason of, why do people riot? I can't believe that. Why are they breaking into... I can't believe... Why would anybody loot a store? Why would anybody steal stuff and load it into their car, sometimes luxury cars, and then run back to the store for more? And why would people who are walking down the street, attack other looters and steal their stuff. (laughs) I am going to be answering that question. Why would they be doing that, okay? That is the goal. In order to explain that to you, I have to tell you something, which you are probably going to... You're going to be skeptical. You're going to be shaking your head and you're being and you're going to be saying rabbi daniel lappen you've gone a little too far this time you can't expect us to believe that what is that my friends that is that destroying things is fun that's all there is to it now if you are a male listener if you are a guy listener then Somewhere in the deep primeval recesses of your consciousness, you probably have a slight faint, faint flicker of recognition. And you say, hmm, yeah, actually smashing things is kind of fun. But if you are a decent, upright, righteous gal, female, woman, uh, you're going to be shaking your head and saying, I don't get that. I just don't get that. Come on. It's fun to break things. Yes, it is. It really, really is. And uh, where do you see it? Well, in unculturated kids, right? Little children. Before you've really started teaching them what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do, before you've started teaching them uh, to say please and thank you, uh, long before that, you'll find that they love throwing the food that you've carefully put on the high chair tray. They'll fling it onto the ground with merry abandon. And you say to yourself, well, that's what kids do. Yes, that's my point. Kids are simply people who have not yet been acculturated. You haven't taught them what civilized behavior means. So therefore, throwing stuff on the ground is fun. Breaking stuff 
is fun. Throwing toys around, breaking toys, it's all fun. It really is. And when boys, little boys become big boys, then shooting targets is fun because there sits a bottle 50 yards downrange and I hold my trusty firearm and whether I start off with a Daisy uh, Red Rider BB gun or whether I am using a 223 high velocity rifle, whatever I'm using, uh, blasting a bottle into smithereens with a hit is fun. Yes, ladies, I know you're thinking less of me now, and I do feel a little bad about that, but not as bad as I would feel if I withheld from you the truth. That's right. Breaking stuff feels good. Maybe more to guys, but I was not shocked to see. This is one of the most important observations I made in the riots of 2020. Many, many more women than I saw in the riots of 92 and the riots of 77. Many, many more women, many more women involved. Isn't that interesting? Uh, why am I not surprised about the increased number of women among the rioters and among the looters? Uh, well, it's, it's like this, you see. Uh, it's very difficult to predict what is going to happen in the life of one person. But it's a lot easier to predict what's liable to happen towards a group of a thousand people behaving in a certain way. And if we increase the number of the group to a million or a hundred million or 300 million, it becomes easier and easier and easier to predict, right? In other words, if I'm sitting in my study reading the Bible and um, you were to run in through the door, look at me and shout, fire! In all probability, I would look up and say, oh, yeah, where? Right? But we all know what happens if you run into a crowded theater and you shout, fire! There's going to be a stampede and people are going to get hurt. Right? I know that. It's reliable because there are a lot of people involved. And so it is. I can't tell you, neither can you tell me, what happens in the life of one woman. But if you tell me that over the course of the last few decades, going back to the 60s, uh, we have told women and educated them and indoctrinated them to believe that they're just like guys, and we further hardened them by normalizing the abhorrence of abortion, you know, it goes against every feminine instinct to kill a baby. But we've made people, we've made women believe that any unwillingness to do that is a tarnish, a stain on their feminist credentials. And so, again, while I can't tell you what any one particular woman who may or may not have had an abortion is going to do, I can't tell you that. But I can tell you that over the course of a few decades, when you're talking about millions of women, and you know they've all been subjected to an incessant barrage 
of propaganda. You're just like guys. Your sex drives are just like guys. You should go ahead and indulge them in a masculine kind of a way. And what's more, your language should be as vulgar as guys. And killing babies is fine. So, you know, if you now tell me that more and more women are being arrested for violent crimes, I'm very sad. I see it as another tragic milestone on the demise of civilization. But uh, it's not a surprise. And so, yeah, given the societal changes, given the indoctrination from the left um, over the past few decades, it's no wonder that the percentage of uh, rioters who are female has been going up. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly what I would expect. And so back to this idea that rioting is fun. Destroying things is fun. Setting things on fire is fun. My goodness, you know, a a, a 12-year-old boy with a box of matches. I'm not going to say he's a pyromaniac, but he's a pyromaniac in training. You know, unless we're taught, it's just fun setting things on fire. And it's fun destroying things. Look, it is. And uh, now you may ask, why don't we do it all the time? Well, because we grow up and we get acculturated. And our parents teach us, you know, right from wrong. That's what happens. But of course, in an organization like Black Lives Matter and many, many other organizations, one of whose primary motivations and reasons for existence is to shatter the centrality of the normative family as the core of society, well, then there are going to be more and more people who grow up without the faintest idea that destroying things is unacceptable. It's wrong. It should be beneath you. You wouldn't want to do such a thing. And so, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's crucially important to understand. And so I will give you an example because it really requires an inversion of thinking. Remember, I had said to you, I was going to answer the question of why would they riot? Why would they break windows? Why would they steal stuff? Because doing so is so remote from your mind and so unthinkable in your heart because you are a decent, upright, righteous person. And so you can't conceive of somebody not only wanting to do that, but enjoying doing that. And so you ask, why would anybody do it? And luckily, you have a rabbi who reveals how the world really works. And that's exactly what we're doing. Listen to this example. Um, you know, God forbid, airplane tragedy, plane comes down, lives lost, horrible thing. Okay. Immediately, all kinds of organizations uh, gather in order to investigate. And this is one of the reasons that the West has this astonishingly safe airplane record. It's really remarkable. One of the reasons is that we never let an accident happen without doing everything necessary. We'll go down to the bottom of the ocean to retrieve the black boxes. We'll do whatever we can. We'll literally painstakingly put together the whole airplane in a hangar until we find out what failed and we fix it up. 
And that's why today, uh, the overwhelming majority of airline mishaps are a pilot error. They're human error because the machinery and the system has been made so very good. And these organizations meticulously get together to ask the question of what brought the airplane down? There it was, flying comfortably 35,000 feet, 620 miles an hour. Uh, inside, uh, passengers are reclining in comfort and uh, not with masks on, by the way, and uh, enjoying a, uh, a snack of, of delicious peanuts and maybe a, a beverage of your choice. And uh, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the peace and calm and gemutlichkeit uh, is destroyed in an in in one savage horrible instant, and down the airplane goes till it hits the ground. Why? And that's what these organizations will spend years studying until they've got it down. They know exactly what happened. Now, occasionally things don't happen quite the way they should, and uh, and I'm thinking of TWA Flight 800, but that's another story and. Some of you know my skepticism of the official report of that mishap um, and the uh, mishap of uh, Secretary of Commerce Ron Brown working for Bill Clinton, his plane that went down in, uh, in Yugoslavia. Yeah, I don't believe the official reports on that, but there are reasons for that. However, overwhelmingly, they do get it right. Now, I'm not a wise guy here or anything, but uh, at very first, the real question, and I value what they do, obviously, but the real question is not what brought it down, because that's obvious. It's gravity. That's right. If it wasn't for gravity, that plane would have stayed at 35,000 feet. Why? Well, because it has engines and wings and control surfaces and an autopilot. So um, <clears throat> it's Here's the idea. The real question is not what brought the plane down, even though that's one they have to study. But the real question is not what brought the plane down, because the answer is simple, gravity. The really interesting question is what kept it up there in the first place. And so uh, the answer is that it has thousands of gallons of fuel burn in a wonderfully efficient machine called a bypass jet engine. And... Uh, it burns, produces what's called thrust, another word for push, and the airplane is pushed through the air at hundreds of miles an hour, and all that air racing over the airfoil surface of the wings produces something we call lift, and the lift equals the weight of the plane, and the plane remains at 35,000 feet. Now, if you run out of fuel, then the lift goes away, and the reason it comes down is gravity, or if uh, a wing is damaged, or if a control surface is damaged, uh, whatever it is, if the, plane <clears throat> if the plane stops having all of those things happen, in the absence of gravity, the plane would just stay there. It would just keep going in the same way that spaceships don't have to have rockets driving them all the way to the moon. They just need to be rocketed up to speed, and then they can be left alone, and they'll just keep flying. But on an airplane, because it takes place near the Earth's surface, and gravity counts and matters, 
So if the energy fails, the power system fails, well, then it doesn't just stay there. Gravity makes it come down. The reason I stress this, and I, I really want each and every one of you of every gender and of every age, young and old, to really understand is because the parallel is not what caused the failure in civilization. No, that's obvious. It's spiritual gravity. The real question is, what caused the wondrous thing called civilization? How did the airplane stay aloft through the wonders of energy and power and lift? What caused civilization to survive? The spiritual construct of values known as the Judeo-Christian tradition. That's right. That's what maintains civilization. And the proof of it is that no other belief system has ever produced a civilization. Oh, they've produced cultures, to be sure, as many as 5,000. But they're not desirable cultures. And the proof of that are the number of people who vote with their feet. People try and come to live in countries that were formed by believers in the Bible. Now, at other times when I've had more time available, I've explained that linkage more detailed. Uh, in, in other words, what is it about biblical teachings that uh, make it possible for an economic system, that makes possible a system of trust, that produces a society of decent, upright, righteous citizens? What are all these things? Well, uh, there, there isn't time now for an in-depth study of that, but there is time for me to show you just two critically important verses in the maintenance manual for human civilization, otherwise known as the Bible. But I call it the maintenance manual of human civilization. Very important. These two verses are not far apart. One of them is Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and the other one is Genesis chapter 8, verse um, 20, is it 21? Um, yeah, 21. I'll show you the verses. Here, again, I wish I could, um, but I can't show you, but I can tell you the verses. Here they are. Chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis. Um, and God saw that the evil in man across the land was very great, and that all the inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only wicked all day, all day and every day, continually. Do you hear that statement? This is really important. And God saw, and again, we, we're not going to go into the theological questions of, I mean, why would God have to see? After all, he created human beings. He probably knew. But that information is here for us. In other words, I'm not interested in a theological discourse on, gee, how come God didn't know? That's irrelevant. What's much more important is not, is not what we think about God, but what God thinks about us. And what God th thinks about us is that we are intrinsically bad. In other words, spiritual gravity. In other words, the tendency is for the plane to come down in flames. It's only through a great deal of effort and ingenuity and hard work that we keep it airborne. Uh, 
How about the next verse? Okay, the next verse is also a lovely verse. Um, and God, this is after Noah's flood, okay? And God smelled. Um, and again, you know, leaving aside the, uh, the obvious theological challenges there, but it's not important for now. And God smelled the sweet smell, meaning of a sacrifice. And the Lord said to himself, I will not again, I will not continue to curse the ground on account of man because the inclination of man's hearts is just evil from his youth. In other words, you know, not from his babyhood, but from a little after. Babies are babies, right? They're lovely, cute, sweet little things that act instinctively. And they give us a bit of an insight into what somebody who's never acculturated will behave like as an adult. But in terms of our nature is bad, there it is. Look, my friends, this is a key. This is an absolutely indispensable key to the structure of civilization. You've got to know that our instinct is towards bad. You know what your instinct is? It's to sit on the couch, watch television, and eat unhealthy food. That's your instinct. You know what your instinct is? Your instinct is to get as much as you can for as little effort and work as possible. Now, because you are decent, upright, righteous, happy warriors who were raised by decent, upright, righteous people, who themselves, your grandparents, were decent, upright, righteous people, you say to yourself, oh, that's rubbish. I, I, I don't want to sit and eat unhealthy food. I, I like working out. And I don't want to steal stuff. I don't want anything for free. I like working for everything I've got. I wouldn't even want to win the lottery. I don't even buy a lottery ticket. I, I like working. And, uh, and you know what? I, I wouldn't take stuff of other people. I like helping other people. As a matter of fact, I actually enjoy giving other people stuff. Yes, I know you say all that and you mean it and you do it and you live it. And it's so much a part of you that you don't realize your greatness. You don't realize what a phenomenal human being you are and how proud God is of what you have made of yourself. That's right. You've got to realize that. You have fought your nature and won. And it's fundamental to building a civilization for us all to understand that we have to fight our nature. And so when does the, um, the end begin? Well, you see, there was a guy called John Dewey. Now, John Dewey uh, was born just after the Civil War, approximately, and he lived until about 1952, just in time to set the groundwork for the fateful 1960s. John Dewey literally remade American education. The Northwest Ordinance that spoke about what American public education would look like, speaking about virtue and God and goodness, was replaced 
by John Dewey. You want to know why prayers were taken out of public school? John Dewey. You want to know why situational ethics were introduced in public school? John Dewey. By the way, I don't mean public school. I mean government indoctrination camps, otherwise known as GICS, G-I-C-S, government indoctrination camps. And almost everything you bemoan that happens in your local GIC happens because of a man called John Dewey, who died after he had set in motion the cataclysm, uh, but didn't live long enough to actually see it. And he um, drew most of his inspiration from another guy called Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a Frenchman who um, was born in the early 1700s and uh, died just about the time of the uh, American War of Independence, about 10 years before the French Revolution, uh, a large part of which, again, came about because of him. So Dewey set in motion the cataclysm that became geeks in America. Uh, Rousseau set in motion the cataclysm that became the French Revolution, and to this day, the European Union. And um, he died 10 years before the revolution, the French Revolution. So he too didn't live to see the full destruction of everything he brought into existence. <clears throat> now, I, um, so this is so beautiful, the stuff you really, you've got to enjoy this. And I hope that uh, you don't just go on the short time we spend together today, but that you might spend a little more time researching more deeply into these matters. Uh, if you're interested in the French Revolution, read Sharma's book called Citizen, finest expose of the French Revolution. And horrible to me, absolutely horrible, that to this day, in almost every public geek in America, well, you don't have to say public, geeks are public, in almost every geek in America, they still teach the French Revolution as a wonderful moment of human enlightenment in the upward trajectory of human improvement. It wasn't like that at all. And uh, here's the key thing. What did John Dewey and Jean-Jacques Rousseau have in common? What was the foundation upon which they built their entire rickety structure of moral relativism? It's very simple. They stated again and again and again, human beings are basically good. There you got it. It's very simple. Human beings are not basically good. You are a decent, upright, righteous citizen because you've worked on yourself. And maybe because you were lucky enough to have parents who, instead of sitting back and, you know, taking drugs and watching TV and indulging themselves, put in the huge effort and expense of educating you. And this gives you an idea of how important family is in those early formative years, because it's in those early years, before you reach the age of 13, in those early 12 or 13 years, that's where your value system is already set in place. And so if you are not raised in a normative family because Black Lives Matter and other organizations want to undo the normative nuclear family, then you didn't learn those things. And um, what is the parallel with the airplane crashing? It's very simply this. Don't ask why the airplane fell down. It fell down because of gravity. 
Now, you want to ask about what caused the fuel to run out. Do they leave without full fuel tanks or whatever? But what made it fall is simple. Don't ask why they're looting. Ask why you weren't looting. Ask why the members of your church are busy helping people, not stealing from people. Ask why the members of your synagogue are engaged in Bible study and are engaged in trying to help people keep the law and engaged in helping people grow their independence and financial enterprises. Ask why that's happening. That's the unusual thing. The airplane falling isn't the strange thing. That's natural. People behaving abominably, killing, stealing, hurting, that's perfectly natural. It's not not good, but it's perfectly natural. That is the way we were created. Along with the mission and the important charge of improving ourselves, fighting our natures, as that magical moment in the movie African Queen with Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart, and uh, he plays um, this river boat guy who uh, drinks enormously, just drinks like crazy, and uh, she plays this marvelous missionary in Africa <clears throat> in the early years of the, uh, 19th, of the uh, 20th century. And uh, you know, bottom line, again, I strongly recommend the movie, by the way, if you haven't, if you've never seen it, it's definitely worth uh, watching African Queen with Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart. And uh, at one point, uh, she gets, she throws a lot of his bottles off the boat into the river, and he's very upset, and, and, and he says, you know, leave me alone. Uh, drinking is my nature. And she, drawing herself up to her full height, looks down at him, and she says, nature, Mr. Allnut, is what we were put into this world to overcome. So beautiful. It's so right. Yes, if you want civilization to exist, you've got to know that we human beings were created to with a tendency towards destructiveness and evil. Breaking stuff is fun. Yes. Beating up people, frankly. I hate to say it, but it is fun. Not for the person who's being beaten up, it isn't. But for the beater-upper, it's a high. Yes, these are things that are built into us. But at the same time, we were given a manufacturer's manual for the maintenance of human civilization. And it says in the very early chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 8, know that the nature of man is evil. Know that. And now equip yourself to fight against it. Raise your children with a self-discipline to overcome the desire for evil. And so, my friends, you asked me, how could anybody go along and loot and steal? That's not the question. The question is, how is it possible that while the police were powerless and looting was in being engaged in by so many people, how come you weren't there doing it as well? That is the question. And that question I can answer very easily. And the answer is because you have values. You either raised or sometimes maybe you were raised badly. Could it happens. But 
as a more mature human being, you got to the point where you realized you needed values. Maybe maybe you were influenced by a, a great pastor, a friend, a mentor, a teacher, a religious leader, but somebody helped you understand that you have to work on yourself constantly. You can't let go. That's part of what being a happy warrior is all about. You can't. And uh, I remember one time teaching this uh, to a group of people in a lecture, and uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, Rabbi, ever since I first heard you explaining this, I feel like I can't relax. I'm constantly watching out for things I have a tendency to do. I'm catching myself wanting to goof off. I'm catching myself wanting to slide into lazy behavior. I catch myself wanting to not do the things I know that I ought to do when I know I ought to do them. When can I relax? And I'm sure you know what my answer was. My answer was the unvarnished truth. Oh, you want to relax, do you? Yes, he said eagerly, I do. I said, well, that's simple enough. When you are dead and in your grave, that is when you can relax. That's relaxing time. And you can be sure that once your soul arrives in the embrace of our Father in heaven, you won't have to work anymore. At that point, you are who you are. And everything you've made of yourself is your moral status and your prominence and your prestige in the world of the spirit is based on what you made of yourself in this world. So there's no relaxing now. You'd be crazy to relax now, but uh, you'll be able to relax then. And I'm sure you're in no hurry for that. And he obviously understood exactly what I was saying. So you want to know why they were looting? Well, now you know. They were looting because looting is perfectly natural, perfectly normal. It's exactly what natural, normal people do if they have not been acculturated by the civilizing values of Judeo-Christian thinking. It's as simple as that. I would bet that uh, the overwhelming majority of the looters were raised by single moms. Not because single moms are terrible, but just because the job of raising a child is not just seeing that the child gets enough food and gets put on the yellow bus to the local gig. The job of raising a child is moral just as much as physical. And if we fail at that, we imperil not only the child, but we imperil all of civilization itself as you can see. And so when the media destigmatizes looting as they constantly do, pretending that it is, oh, just another legitimate form of protest, uh, what they really are doing is contributing to the obliteration of the civilization that you and I depend upon to be able to live our lives in tranquility and relative prosperity. That's what they're doing. So you're talking about media, you're talking about George Soros and many others of his ilk, who, along with the looters, 
should earn our justifiable anger and resentment because they are making it less and less likely that we and our children and our children's children will be able to continue to live in tranquility and peace and serenity and prosperity because when civilization goes, well, it's pretty much all over. It really is. So why are all these people, why are they so intent on shattering civilization? Surely they themselves also benefit from civilization? Or to put it another way, why is it that the looters destroy the very stores in their neighborhoods that they like having there and which are now no longer going to be there? Why is it that the media are destroying the civilization that makes their jobs possible, gives them their livelihoods? Well, let me try and explain. You see, all of us have a deep human need to live by a set of values, by a matrix of morality outside of ourselves. We all do. And we all have a deep desire as vital and as basic as our need for oxygen and water and food, we have a deep fundamental desire to give of ourselves. Yes, the Bible lays a lot of this out in Genesis as well as in Leviticus, to give of ourselves in the form of sacrifice. No, we're not busy slaughtering animals on the altar, of course not. But we are lowering the thermostat and stopping to use energy and driving in unhappy vehicles, trying to eke out another few miles per gallon at government behest, by the way. Um, And we are stopping to enjoy the convenience of plastic straws and paper plates. And we are prohibiting the use of those lovely clamshell containers in which you can buy fast food in which it stays warm and convenient and clean and safe. All of these are sacrifices we're willing to pay for a set of values outside of ourselves. Now, speaking for myself, I, I got a set of values, and uh, it's, it's biblically based. It's outside of myself. It requires sacrifices of me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I've become used to them, and they've become a part of my life, so they're not particularly arduous. Um, not being able to work for 25 hours every Saturday as the sun goes down on Friday afternoon, knowing that I'm not able to answer emails or or be on my website or do any of the things I like doing. I can't even write my book uh, for 25 hours till Saturday night. Yeah, that, that is a sacrifice, but it's one that I not only have got used to, but I've become to depend upon, uh, to have that brief uh, circadian rhythm allowing me one complete day of withdrawal out of Every seven busy days or six busy days, uh, I've come to depend on it. But it nonetheless is a sacrifice. Um, Not being able to walk into any restaurant and enjoy what looks to be a delicious meal on the menu. uh, Yeah, because as a Jew, I'm required to confine my dietary intake uh, to things that conform to the laws of kosher. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm used to it, you know, so it's not, it's not any huge problem for me. However, I salute with open-mouthed admiration 
and with breathtaking amazement um, the many people who become God-fearing, Bible-believing Jews later in life. Um, I, In fact, my synagogue in California that I served for many years uh, was made up almost entirely of adults who were born Jews, raised secular, and reached a point where they were ready to embrace Judaism in its classical sense and uh, turn their lives over to the service of God. Now, they were screenwriters and engineers and scientists and business people, and uh, we had every kind of profession in the synagogue. But for them at that stage of life to switch over to only kosher food, I have no deep, true recognition of how great that commitment is because I've basically I've never really eaten non-kosher food so I, I'm I don't even know what I'm missing I kind of you know when I arrive hungry in a new city or I'm stuck at an airport starving and there's you know there's no kosher food in the airport concessions I mean yeah you know okay I I, I say well boy uh, must be nice to be able to just eat anywhere but it's no huge hardship but for people who lived into their 20s and 30s um, in a general kind of a way, eating anything, anytime, anywhere, uh, for them to suddenly adopt uh, the stringent laws of kosher food into their lives, as I said, I am just filled with admiration and amazement at what those people are doing to regulate themselves. But each of you at your own level and in your own place and in your own style, you're all doing that because that's what makes you upright, decent, righteous people. You're all trying to restrain yourself from doing anything you feel like, right? Um, remaining faithful to a marriage. Look, when you're used to it and it's been many years, okay, you know, it's not, it's, it's not quite the same struggle. But... Um, and, you know, it's it's true for women and men. Um, it, it used to be more true for men than for women because the temptations and the, uh, and the opportunities thrust at men uh, to violate the sacredness of their marriages uh, was, was almost legendary if you go back a, f a decade or two or three or four. Uh, today, however, it's as, um, it's as challenging for women. And so when a man and a woman remain faithful to their marriage, don't think that's nothing. Don't underestimate the daily act of greatness it involves. By act of greatness, I mean going against um, chapter 8, verse 21, or chapter 5, verse 6, uh, going against the reality that we do tend to desire and want the wrong things. That's true. And that's not a, a diminishing of us. Right? I've known uh, people who've come to me and said, I, you know, I've been God-fearing for so many years now. I've been doing this for 10 years since I accepted. And I still, I can't, I, it really bothers me that I look at other women and I think to myself, um, you know, how much I would enjoy being with her. And I have to explain to them that, the desire to do wrong is a validation that you are alive 
It's a validation that you are who God made you. And overcoming that is a huge thrill and a monumental human accomplishment, literally a signpost to greatness. And so whatever at whatever level it is, each of you, whether it's doing the things you have to do when you have to do them, going to work, looking after a family, getting married, deciding to get married, uh, resist opportunities for dishonesty, uh, resist opportunities of cruelty and and uh, disinterest in the people in your community, in your orbit of need, uh, overcoming all of that all the time, it's remarkable. And so please know that you, each and every one of you, is worthy of the admiration that I feel for every happy warrior listening to this show. I don't know each and every one of you, obviously. But again, statistically, right, I get so many letters from you that I am justified in assuming that that is a legitimate sampling of the mass. And I just, I'm astonished. I look at the letters I get. You are really incredible people. You are really great human beings. It's tremendous. And so that is where the amazement lies. And the uh, attempt on the part of the George Soros's the liberals, the far lefties, uh, the progressives, the media, the geeks, the institutions of the, our bureaucracy, all of whom are doing these things to damage civilization. Why? Well, as I was explaining to you, uh, we are all built with a need and a desire to live our lives according to a greater matrix of morality and uh, to be willing to sacrifice for it. Uh, people who are God-fearing Bible believers know what they're supposed to do, and they go ahead and do it. And it's incredible. It's wonderful. It's quite astonishing what you are making of yourselves. And uh, not only I am astounded, but I'm sure God is as well. But uh, what about people who are on the other side? Well, it's very simple. In the same way, that you might be somebody who is devoted to maintaining the authenticity of the Bible as the manufacturer's manual for human civilization. Well, they on the other side are just as committed to you as you are to shattering the Bible in that role, to rendering it utterly irrelevant, to mocking it and humiliating its believers. Yeah, that's right. That is truly exactly what's going on. Now, every now and then you run across a truly honest progressive, and uh, I, I love them. I, it's so wonderful when an, a progressive is completely honest. It's so rare, but I love it. And uh, there is a quote that is very firmly in my mind. I can see it even in print in my mind, but I'm not, I thought it was by a professor at uh, Columbia University in the 1950s called Lionel Trilling. And I think it was him, but I have searched and searched and searched, and I've got a feeling that it is embedded in my notes. I have thousands and thousands of uh, news clippings that I've accumulated that people have sent me over the years. Nowadays, they just send you a URL, but um, from 
the beginning of my congregational work in California in 1978, uh, people were always sending me news clippings of things they knew I was interested in. So I think it's some, I got to digitize them in uh, searchable format. I absolutely have to do that. But again, it's just one of those things. Uh, but bottom line is I'm not able to verify that it was Lionel Trilling, but I think it was him huge statement of honesty he was a big progressive of the 1950s he would have been a big fan of uh, thomas excuse me john dewey the man who changed the gicks of america uh, but uh, what he said and i think it was him but the statement was the primary purpose of the modernist project is to undo 20 centuries of judeo-christian tradition and turn every sin into a virtue and every virtue into a vice now how beautiful is that how often does somebody tell you exactly what they intend doing i mean adolf hitler writing the book mein kampf uh, was you know another example of somebody being really honest it's just that most Western statesmen never bothered to read it. But uh, if it was Lionel Trilling, thank you to Lionel Trilling. May your soul rest in peace. Uh, I appreciate you telling us what progressivism was all about. You were right. It is all about overturning 20 centuries of Judeo-Christian tradition and turning every sin like homosexuality into a virtue and turning every virtue like family life and marriage into a vice yeah yeah we got it oh but it's beautiful and that helps us understand the diligence and determination with which progressivism is focused on destroying a biblical worldview you know why is abortion such a virtue well because it's a biblical vice and why is homosexuality so important? Well, because the Bible prohibits it. And why must we undo the nature of male-female uh, realities? Why is it that although people who proclaim their commitment to science, oh, science says that we must keep six feet away from each other. Well, it's funny that science in Sweden says one, four and a half feet and science in England says three feet. It's funny that they're different sciences. For instance, I didn't think that the um, acceleration due to gravity of just under 10 meters per second squared changes in different countries it does by the way but fractionally and unnoticeably but uh, it's basically the same everywhere i would have thought that the scientific re extent you have to distance from one another for covid 19 well it's science no it isn't friends it's politics and today's show isn't the right time to go into why they are doing that and what their motivation is because i have my work cut out for me to explain adequately what is going on with looters and those who enable them and destigmatize their activities. And so, uh, yeah, we've got to understand exactly what's going on here. The desire to undo a biblical worldview, sure. Male and female, not a reality. It's a spectrum, and there's gender, and there's different pronouns. You know why? Only for one reason. And that is in Genesis chapter 1, it says magically these words, male and female, he created them.
and the answer of the progressive is, well, we'll show you about that, we are going to overturn every single biblical understanding. You think family is the right way to establish society? Well, we at Black Lives Matter, we'll show you that this is not the case, and we are going to undo that. We are committed to disrupting the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure. We are committed to disrupting that. That's right, because their value system is not the Bible-based Judeo-Christian one. It's secular fundamentalism, which has its entire set of values. It's got its saints, and it's got its, its sinners, and it's got its holy writings, and it's got its fundamental doctrines, and it's got its sacred sacraments. Uh, yeah, of course, it is a belief system. And it perfectly satisfies the human need for a larger moral matrix. Climate change, save the planet, environmentalism. People believe that. It's not science. It's not based on science, although the pretense is that in the holy ark of their holy of holies lies the sacred texts of science. No, they don't accept that. Nothing could be more scientific than that we are gendered to be male or female, nothing in between, and not either or, and you can't change from one to the other. You can mutilate yourself, but you're still a man or you're still a woman. That's all there is to it. Yeah, that's biblical, and therefore it must be rejected because they have as much of a motivation and as much of a determination to build up their worldview and destroy the heretics like me, as I have to maintain my God-centric, Bible-based worldview and do everything I can to destroy the heresies of the progressive left because they are destroying civilization. Yes, they are. My friends, like I said, you know, raising a child is a sacred obligation not just to feed the kid and put him on a yellow school bus. No, it's to inculcate in that child during the critical first 12 years a value system. And if you fail to do that, you have to know that it defaults to secular fundamentalism. In other words, it is hard to introduce a civilization protecting biblical worldview in a child. And that's why it's so tough for a single mom who's doing her best to keep the child physically safe and fed and healthy. That's what she's trying to do. She doesn't have the time or the energy or the resources that have to go into building up the soul of that child. And unfortunately, the price we pay for single motherhood is not so much the physical health of the child, although... We now know that one of the most reliable determinants and predictors of later trouble with the law is having no father. But we do know that the ultimate penalty is that civilization slides down the slippery slope of secularism until finally it passes through decadence and depravity on its way to oblivion. That is how civilizations perish. It's happened before and it will happen again. I only pray not to the ones in which you and I are living. 
and I know we've got listeners all over the world. We've got listeners in Canada and listeners in uh, everywhere. I don't have to tell you my my world map is almost chock full of pins. Not quite. So you can still please let me know where you are listening from. But um, but yes, civilization is absolutely crucial for our ongoing way of life and for civilization to depend to exist it depends on the preservation of a judeo-christian bible-based civilization by the way it doesn't mean everyone has to be religious doesn't mean that but it does mean people cannot be dedicated believers in secular fundamentalism because if that happens then and it defaults in that direction in other words to the, the child who is not given a rigorous and careful education in a Bible-based Judeo-Christian worldview, he's going to default towards destructiveness. He's going to default towards secular fundamentalism. That is the natural state. I call that spiritual gravity. In the same way that physical gravity makes that airplane that ran out of fuel tumble to the ground, spiritual gravity makes the child or the adult who is totally without the fuel of Judeo-Christian civilization makes him tumble down to loot the stores and riot in the streets, to kill, injure, steal, and rob, to plunder and to rape and to pillage. That is a natural outcome of the spread of the worst virus of all. You thought coronavirus was a problem? Ha <laughs> ha! Not at all! I mean, we've shown we're coping with that. We're coming back. Even with every attempt by the bureaucrats and government powers and by media to fan the flames of COVID-19 and to try and destroy the United States of America by prolonging the shutdown in the interests of public health, in spite of all their attempts, yeah, coronavirus didn't get us. Not going to. But I'll tell you what could get us. A far more virulent virus. A far more dangerous virus. A virus that didn't come from China, you'll pardon me. A virus that comes from the earliest days of the Garden of Eden. The virus of secular fundamentalism. That's it. And this virus spreads through society. It spreads through contact and communication. It spreads through the media. It spreads through the internet. It spreads through people talking to people. And it spreads because people who are not given the antidote default naturally to that state. That's the most dangerous thing of all. And that is, it's not good enough to do nothing. If somebody were to say, hey, I got a good idea. You know what? I'm tired of hearing from Rabbi Daniel Lappin about Judeo-Christian values. And you know what? I'm just as tired from all of these secular fundamentalists who are angry and destructive about anything religious or any biblical value. You know what? A pox on both their houses. I'm going to build a society where we're not going to have one and we're not going to have the other. That's all. Right? Simple. No religion, no secular fundamentalism. People are just going to live naturally. And I'm afraid the bad news is that society will default through spiritual gravity to secular fundamentalism. It will, uh, just as it always has any time it's been tried. So there we are, I'm afraid. 
That is the picture. We, in exactly the same way as it takes real effort and energy and resources to raise a child. Yes, it takes a mother and a father to raise a child to become somebody who will maintain and build and contribute to civilization rather than a child that will evolve into a rioter and a looter. It takes effort in the same way it takes effort and energy and resources to take the steps to maintain a civilization. And yes, I do see the keys to that in the manufacturer's manual for the maintenance of human civilization. Sure. And it doesn't mean that everyone has to be religious. No. It just means that people mustn't... We we can't have a tipping point of too many in the population becoming secular fundamentalists. And unfortunately... We just may be at that tipping point right now. That is about as far as we can go. Don't forget to read more about Rousseau and uh, John Dewey. Don't forget to read more about the French Revolution. Um, Don't forget to explore more about rioting and looting. Uh, You might be intrigued, as I was, to see the increase in female participation. Also, by the way, in violent crime, robberies, uh, many, many, many more women involved. It used to be that death row reserved for the most vile and brutal of murderers. It used to be it was a male-only environment. And by the way, nobody used to, oh, sexism, sexism. There needs to be equal distribution of sex. Well, they never said that, but they've done everything possible to make sure it does happen. So, yes, um, will we see women sentenced to death in the near future? Sure. Uh, We've seen, you know, occasional rare instances. But will it now begin to be a more noticeable proportion of the, yeah, obviously, if, if there isn't a turnaround, if we do not restore and repair, yeah, of course that's going to happen. And um, just remember, it's not only the looters. They're bad enough, but it's the enablers and the destigmatizers. Yes, it is the George Soros. Uh, and I wish it wasn't. I wish he wasn't a left-leaning progressive Jew causing such damage. I wish he was not interfering with Hungary's internal matters and uh, trying to prevent Hungary from resisting the European demand that they absorb Muslim refugees, right? God bless Mr. Orban, the head of Hungary, who realizes that his obligation is to preserve and protect his country, and it drives Angela Merkel crazy, and it drives um, many, many other European leaders crazy, but uh, yeah, Hungary is not admitting Muslims to disrupt their society, and uh, that is something that irritates Mr. Soros, who has spent a great deal of time and money to try and make that happen. Yeah, uh, he and all the others, um, the folks in media and entertainment and politics and bureaucracies and All of these folks who have adopted the faith of secular fundamentalism, along with whatever outcomes it brings, that's just part of the sacrifice that is legitimate for their faith. They have another explanation. They have ways of interpreting phenomena like uh, looting, for instance, 
by means of the economic explanation I gave you when we started today, uh, the idea that the kinds of jobs that proliferate today are precisely those that were impacted by coronavirus. And so all of these people were left without jobs. So what do you expect them to do other than loot? That's one of the explanations. But uh, progressivism will always find some kind of explanation for the havoc that their own doctrines inflict on society, uh, but always that have absolutely nothing to do with those underlying doctrines. Now, I know, of course, and I greatly cherish the many, many people who listen to this show who are not religious, right? People who, uh, first of all, may not be Jewish or Christian, they may be other religions, um, or maybe no religion at all, and that's fine. You know, uh, if I get invited to dinner as once happened, and I must tell you, I do not like sitting on the floor, okay? If I'm boating, well, I don't mind sitting on the deck, but when people invited Mrs. Lappin and me to their home for dinner one evening, and uh, yeah, kosher people, um, the food, you know, no problem there. But they decided to make it an Ethiopian evening. Now, I've never been in Ethiopia, although I'm an African-American. I have been in many parts of Africa. I've not been in Ethiopia. And so I do not know what Ethiopian food is like. I, I really don't. And when we arrived there, um, to our astonishment, there was a big bowl of food in the middle of the carpet, in the living room, on the on the carpet, and we were to sit all around on, on the carpet. I think they'd laid out a blanket. We were all to sit on the blanket around this big pot of food, and there were no plates. They were just sort of paper napkins. And what they explained was that we were going to be eating Ethiopian food, and we were going to be eating it in an Ethiopian style. And uh, that involved reaching into the bowl and taking a clump of um, uh, a sort of white, looked like mashed potatoes, but it wasn't. And you sort of hold that in your hand, and then you scoop, you, you dip that whole hand into another bowl that has a sauce, and then you push that into your mouth. Well, I've got to tell you, I was physically ill at the prospect. I just, I can't eat like that. I'm sorry. It's just not, I can't do it. Um, I'm okay. I, you know, I'm fine. Take me to a barbecue and give me a lamb chop. I'll eat it with my fingers. I will. That's that's fine. But, you know, this I couldn't do. And everyone reaching out of this, you know, never mind double dipping. <laughs> I mean, really, everybody reaching into the same bowl for this mashed potato type kind of stuff. It wasn't potato. It was corn based. And um, and then dipping it in a, I, and then eating while we're sitting on the floor, I must tell you. Um, and. I thought to myself, you know, why are people putting up with this? I mean, surely other people are uncomfortable as well. And the answer is that you are willing to immerse yourself in a different cultural experience, right? It doesn't, it's, it's not the end of the world. And so I was very polite. I mean, I pretended to, I, I couldn't make myself eat. I'm sorry that I couldn't do, but I certainly pretended to be eating. And we certainly sat there through the evening making conversation. And when it was finally um appropriate it was uh it was it would be polite we 
politely took our leave. We thanked our hosts and off we went with great relief. And of course, we went home to dinner. But, uh, but you know, people do this. You know, you go to a, a restaurant, you immerse yourself in a foreign culture. And I think that uh, for many of my secular listeners, for many of my listeners who are not religious, I have listeners who are atheists, I think not only are they open-minded people, but I think to some extent they do something which I think is wonderful, which is they're saying to themselves, hey, this, this is no big deal. We don't agree with this. We don't believe it. We don't buy it. Um, but it's an interesting view of another culture. It's, it's a lens of reality through something we don't know. And uh, you never know, right? After a while, who knows? This may turn out to be a more accurate picture of reality than the one you have currently built for yourself and are using. But at any rate, it's certainly okay. And uh, I, I, I don't by any means expect everybody to agree. If you were, if you already agreed with everything I'm saying, then you know that it means I'm doing nothing but massaging you with warm butter. And you don't want that, um, you know, certainly not from me, uh, to just sort of make you feel good and just repeat everything you already believe and everything you think you know. Uh, nah, that's, that's not exciting. If, uh, if you are not challenged by different aspects of each show, then that's not a good thing. You, you want to be challenged and, and you want to be exposed to something. And then the, the progressive way of viewing that would be, oh, well, they're wrong. I won't listen to it. And by the way, I mean, there are people like that. And I've, I've given lectures at universities where that has happened. But uh, for the most part, thoughtful, intelligent, open-minded people can hear something with which they don't agree and then listen to it and evaluate it later on their own time, figuring out how does this comport with reality as I see it. And, uh, and I've had wonderfully illuminating and uplifting conversations with people who do not agree with me at all, but who nonetheless uh, are able to open their minds to something with which they don't agree, as I try to do as well, and then we discuss it and, uh, and, and see whether uh, anybody brings up points that really change our perception of how things are. So um, do that. I also just want to point out one other thing. Don't think that Thomas John Dewey or Jean-Jacques Rousseau were these giants of history who God ordained to be the ones to change the way the world is perceived. It's true that John Dewey was certainly responsible for the destruction of education in America and the resulting geeks we have today. He had a huge responsibility in that. It's certainly true that John Jacques Rousseau, with his whole idea of noble savage getting rid of civilization, getting rid of the Bible, getting rid of the family structure, he, he agrees with Black Lives Matter in that, or they agree with him. Uh, it's true that inflicted incredible damage by uh, by increasing the large number of people who saw things in a certain way. Look, um, these things do happen at certain stages in the evolution of an epoch. Uh, the television series called Friends, which ran on American television for, I think, more than 10 years, uh, that was an example of this kind of thing. It was cleverly done. It was brilliant, and uh, it was good-natured, and it was very seductive. 
The hidden message which impacted large numbers of people, I know of some myself who were impacted, the, uh, the hidden message was that you don't need family. And in fact, you know, you, you meet um, the family of one of the, the brother and the sister. Uh, you meet their parents, um, the uh, father and mother of another uh, participant, you know, these are, what was it, six, was it six young people living in Manhattan, six or eight, I think it was six, um, and uh, you meet, but by and large, the message is family isn't important, friends are, and it's, it's kind of notable that that led into the period where terming uh, our friend you actually has meaning, even though no reality, so uh, you have things happening at certain points of history where the evolution of society makes it ripe for something to click. And, um, and you know, if, if Friends wouldn't have happened, there would have been some other kind of show. But at that point, it was just the time where the devolution of American society was ripe for a strong sitcom that devalued family but in the nicest possible way and it's it's like that you know have you have you noticed how often it happens in history that scientific developments or technological discoveries are made at the same time by two separate people utterly disconnected from one another pre-internet you know pre-television they they didn't know what one another all of a sudden turns out that two disconnected human beings were working on exactly the same thing and emerged with the same idea at about the same time reinforced concrete this brilliant idea of embedding steel with high tensile strength in cement with high compressive strength and getting this super substance this incredible construction material called reinforced concrete two different people at the same time radio marconi and edison no connection with one another both coming up with the same idea of communicating with wireless which was a huge breakthrough uh, up till that point even wired communication was still reasonably new uh, calculus leibniz and newton didn't know one another both working independently and this incredible mathematical breakthrough that everybody should know something about calculus well that uh, comes about um, even the theory of of uh, uh, evolution charles darwin and also a man called wallace same time separate the idea of species changing by natural selection regardless of whether it turns out to be right or wrong but both came up with idea at the same time how do you explain that and in all these cases i, I give you examples of it's not they were five years apart they were literally at the same time and the answer my friends is beautiful the answer is that god monitors the progress of society and there are certain points at which certain things naturally emerge and whoever happens to be looking in the right direction as it were happens upon it right in the same way if if you are watching through clandestine surveillance equipment the evolution of a, a new tribe on a remote desert island you were able to watch them for about a thousand years if you told me that hey guess what they've just come up with nuclear power and i say well do they have electricity no they haven't how about steam power have they got steam power no they haven't got that either i'd laugh at you and say you've made a mistake it didn't happen 
because there is a natural evolution. There is a natural progression. Uh, people are going to discover fire, then they're going to discover steam, and eventually they will discover um, electricity, they will discover fuels that burn more efficiently than wood, such as oil, and eventually they'll get nuclear power. But it doesn't happen in the wrong order. These things do have a progression. And so, um, you know, a, a wise person could watch a society at a certain stage and say, well, you know what? They're only a few years from getting steam power. Steam power is going to be next. Everyone says, well, what's steam power? What are you talking about? Don't worry, I'll write it down. And when, when you find it, you can open up my papers and you'll see I, I, I told you what you're going to be discovering. And so, so it is with both technological and scientific advances. And it is also with philosophical ideas such as, come on, let's build a society on the basis that human beings at heart are intrinsically good and, and decent, upright people. That's the basic part of a human being. And it's only the evils of society that produce everything wrong. And that's why capitalism is bad and sexism is bad and racism is bad and anti-Semitism is bad. All of this rubbish is simply to account for all of the problems. No, the problems are there because you built a society based on a wrong foundation. You built a society on a foundation that human beings are intrinsically good. And since that is so fundamentally flawed, obviously the structure of civilization that you built on it failed. It can't possibly hold together. Well, their explanation is it failed because of all these external evils, the sexism and the racism, etc., etc. Uh, the truth is that it failed because nothing built on a rotten, false foundation stands any chance of surviving or thriving. And that is exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, it was just the right time for John Dewey to come up with this idea of, oh, we're all fundamentally good. Now let's build education and society on that idea. If he wouldn't have done it, somebody else would have done it, right? In the same way that if uh, Newton wouldn't have thought of calculus, well, don't worry, Leibniz got it. If Leibniz wouldn't have, don't worry, Newton got it. Uh, when the time is right, then it happens. I hope I'm not making a mistake in sharing this with you on a, on a rather abbreviated and uh, quick basis, when in reality, uh, the, the topic requires considerably more material. You know, I'm to a large extent guided by the letters you send. Uh, people come up with ideas, people ask me to review something, people ask me to talk about and answer something, and uh, I work that into upcoming uh, podcasts and shows. And so in the same way, I uh, invite you, by the way, if there's anything that I've covered today in today's show that you'd like more elaboration on or you'd like to, um, to uh, further discuss, go ahead and go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Right? You should have that now, I hope, rabbidaniellappin.com. And you just uh, look for the uh, tab where it says About Us. And then it's got a part where you, it says Contact Us. And you send me a, a letter, and I'll get it. And as many of you discovered, I reply to a great many of them. Not all, but a lot. So uh, please do that. Also, go to the website, and uh, I want you to go to the store and get yourself a set of the Thought Tool books. You can get them on Kindle as well. You can get them uh, however you want. But if you like, we'll be happy to pop a set of them into the mail to you. Go to the store. You'll see a nice price on the set. It's three terrific books. 
these thought tools which we publish every week, what we do is we collect more than 50 of them into a volume, and we've got three volumes like that. And what I like about it is that, number one, if you've ever wanted to have a topic of conversation for your family dinner table, you know, you find for, you know, the, the people around the table are talking about TV shows or they're talking about friends. And you say to yourself, you know what, I don't want to talk about people. I don't want to talk about things. I don't want to talk about entertainment. I'd like to talk about ultimate issues. I'd like to talk about meaningful ideas. I'd like to talk about timeless truths. Well, if you get the set uh, for a few dollars, you got yourself more than 150 topics of conversation, which you will find really vital and an important part in raising your children of any age, by the way. You'll be amazed. Um, your challenge is to make it suitable, age appropriate for whatever the age of the children sitting around your table is. But in as much as it is your responsibility to do far more than feed your children and put them on the yellow bus to the gig, uh, it is also to create for them their moral matrix of reality, these thought tool volumes will really do it. So it's rabbidaniellappin.com. You click on the store section and uh, go ahead and get it. You know what? It's a nice gift as well. And uh, I assure you, people will love it. People will benefit from it. And needless to say, it furthers the propagation of my work and Mrs. Lappin's teachings in the sense that uh, it expands the reach. More people get an opportunity to gain an insight into reality through ancient Jewish wisdom. Uh, the other thing that's nice about it is that, you know, if you you put on hold sometimes or you, you've got 10 minutes between events and you, you look around, it's too little time to start a new project, uh, you just pick this up. And for, you know, in five or 10 minutes, you can absorb a short lesson. That's all it takes. These things are never more than a thousand words long. So they, they really are quick to absorb, uh, but always a substantive Bible-based concept. So enjoy them. It's 150 separate ideas. And I think it'll be a real valuable addition to, to your family. So over to RabbiDanielLappin.com where you can write. You can also read back issues of Thought Tools and Susan's Musings and our Ask the Rabbi column. There's always a whole lot going on there. All at RabbiDanielLappin.com. So do that and uh, stay in touch. Thank you for being part of the show. All of you happy warriors, I appreciate the, the, the battles you fight and wage, usually with yourself, right? That's, that's the biggest battles we're all engaged in. But we're also fighting entropy. We're also struggling to run our livelihoods and struggling to create or run our families. Uh, always, always much work to be done. The battle is never won. And uh, there is no time to relax until the very end of one life and the start of an entirely different one. Thank you for being part of the show. Thank you for all you've been doing to spread word on the show. It's really fabulous. It's been growing beautifully, and I appreciate that. It, it makes it wonderful for us and, and makes us more and more viable financially as time goes by. Really appreciate that. So thank you again, and I wish you... Until we meet again on the next show, I wish you a week of good times with your physical fitness, your finances, yes, your faith, your family, and your friendships. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.